All right. Well, good morning. Uh, happy day to you. It's a nice day. Hope that you guys are going to get outside today. Uh, I, and I'm curious, um, how many of you are wearing PJs right now? If you are, I'd like you to confess to the group in the comments. Uh, the rest of us would like to pray for you. Business as usual for us here at the church, except we're really getting tired of staring at um, this um, thing, uh, this video camera. So we're very excited to get back together uh, uh, as fast as we can, as safely as we can. And uh, we'll probably be talking to you guys in the next uh, few weeks or so, weeks, whatever, uh, about how that's going to happen. And um, so, yeah, so be praying for us as we make those decisions. Um, uh, by the way, uh, Annie at Ocean Sky, uh, the Chinese restaurant in Chehalis, she thanks everybody for coming down uh, that has come down and supported them. Um, they are now able to open uh, from Tuesday through Sunday from uh, 12 to 8 p.m. So uh, that's pretty exciting. And um, also in that whole, uh, with that whole thing, I, I would ask you to pray with us that uh, God would open more doors just to share the gospel with them. Uh, we've commuted very clearly that we care for them, we love them, uh, but uh, we don't want our love to be impotent without the gospel. Uh, so, and you're welcome to share with them as well. So be praying about that. Um, continue to pray as our state begins uh, next week to slowly start um, lifting the ban. And I know there's all kinds of, of um, civil disobedient people out there already that are doing it. And... Um, but we want to do it safely. We want to do it the right way. Also, don't stop praying for our missionaries and uh, our local community. And uh, we'll just see what God does, how he uses all this. So thanks for praying. Keep it up. Now, uh, believe it or not, today, if God permits, we're going to finish uh, Hebrews chapter 12. But I need to warn you, uh, as I intend to represent the text well, there's going to be a little bit of hellfire and brimstone. So if it makes you feel uneasy, you have actually experienced what the author intended. And uh, as you know me, I don't just come out and teach hellfire and brimstone. But uh, if it's in the text, it's going to get taught. And this morning, the author intends to communicate um, the judgment of God and uh, the severity of God. So let me um, sort of introduce an overview of the chapter to you, and then uh, we'll go through it line by line. So in this final section of chapter 12, we have what really is the final warning in the book of Hebrews about the irrevocable consequences of refusing or rejecting Christ. There's been a number of them. We'll review all of them uh, later on in the, our time together. Uh, but this is the final one. And this warning is uh, connected, directly connected to the thought in verse 16 and 17 regarding Esau, who traded his birthright for a bowl of soup uh, for which he was rejected when he wanted to inherit his father's blessing. And this was irrevocable. He could not recover what he had traded. Uh, he was willing to forfeit everything just to satisfy his stomach. But later, when he wasn't hungry, he wanted back all that he has, had lost, but it was too late. The author of Hebrews told us to be on the lookout for people like Esau, who at one moment could care less about important matters, but in the next moment, he would care deeply for them. Their level of concern for important issues depends really on the circumstances, how they feel about something. For Esau at the moment, 
satisfying his hunger was more important than his birthright, and his birthright really was everything, especially in that culture. And for this, the author referred to Esau as a profane person. And that is actually what relates to the context of this Hebrew fellowship this way. He says, some in this community of believers, they were tempted to deny Christ and go back to Judaism in order to find some relief from their persecution. But then, after things calmed down, they figured that they could just pick up where they left off with Christ and with his people. But just as Esau forever lost his birthright, those who refuse Christ as the mediator of the new covenant and turn away from his instruction in order to find some relief from persecution or to gain some acceptance in the unbelieving community, the author is telling us that they will be rejected. Persecution then, like hunger, is not a good reason to sell your birthright as a Christian. Persecution he is trying to teach should draw us closer to Christ, not push us away. There's an illustration given by Ray Comfort, I don't have time to give the whole thing, but you can listen to it yourself uh, in an audio called Hell's Best Kept Secret. But there he says, if you know you'll have to jump out of the airplane at any moment, you don't take your parachute off because it causes you some discomfort. You cling to it because your life depends on it. The same way our life depends on Christ more than our necessary food and the air that we breathe. And our affiliation to him can cause a lot of discomfort in this life. Historically, it's destroyed people's reputations. Uh, For others, it's ruined their way of life and their livelihood. For others, it's just been criticism. But for others, they've paid the ultimate price with their life. But none of these things, according to the scriptures, are worth rejecting Christ for. Uh, With him, we inherit eternal life. That's our birthright. Because through faith, our soul is tethered to him in eternity. But apart from him, the soul is lost. There's just no hope. So it doesn't make any sense to reject Christ because of heartache or persecution. The only logical thing, the only biblical thing to do is to cling to him more tightly. The body may be subject to temporal suffering, our families to heartache, but the soul is forever anchored to Jesus. So let's look at our text itself. I'll be reading to you. Um, out of, I'll be reading to you God's word from the New King James Version. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 will begin in verse 18 and we'll read to the end. <clears throat> the author says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for all of your word, not just the flowery parts, the things that we enjoy, But Lord, the severity of God that comes through your word, we thank you for those parts as well. Just as in the book of Revelation, the angels constantly were praising you for your righteous indignation against evil. And Lord, uh, this word this morning uh, probably needs to be heard from some people that might be listening in. And for others, uh, certainly, that are receiving your grace and walking with you, there's no threat of death, Lord. But we need your word. We need to feel uneasy about sin, about disloyalty. We need to walk close with you. So I pray that some people would be so uneasy that they would repent and be restored. And the rest of us, Lord, even uh, be uh, reassured. So Lord, just whatever uh, every individual heart needs from you this morning, I pray that you would communicate to them. And Lord, I do pray also that you would continue with our missionaries as uh, their situation is not as uh, comfortable as ours. Uh, Lord, I just pray that you would protect them and that you would use them in their context. And uh, the same for us, Lord. We want to be protected. But Lord, we want to be used uh, for the sake of other people, for the sake of your glory. And um, so yeah, as many uh, evil people would not let this, this crisis go to waste, Lord, Uh, We as your people, we don't want to let this crisis go to waste. We want your love to shine in this broken world. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as you can see from this final section of chapter 12, the author compares two different groups of people who approach two different mountains, which which represent two very different covenants, but from the same God. Verse 18 through 21 refers to Israel when they stood in dread uh, at the threat of death at the base of Mount Sinai as Moses received the first covenant, which he calls the Ten Commandments. And verse 22 through 24 refers to the church which is congregated at Mount Zion, which, has, uh, through, which really is through the mediation of Christ's blood for the new covenant. And then verse 25 through 29 provide both a warning about apostasy and an exhortation about the reception of grace. Let's first consider Israel at Mount Sinai After coming through the wilderness from Egypt, Israel, as we know, they camped at the base of Mount Sinai where God planned to deliver his covenant to them. And it's good to try to imagine the scene. Uh, And and the scene must have been something horrifying to them. And I'm not sure that people today would have the same response having been exposed to to so much special effects in uh, Hollywood and stuff. But for them, it must have been just horrifying. 
So to begin with, the boundary line was set up around the base of the mountain to ensure that no one touched the mountain. If they did, they were to be executed, as the author says in verse 20. And then three days later in the morning, a thick cloud, a dark cloud, settled over the mountain that was erupting with thunder and lightning, lightning, and then the sound of a trumpet. And then the mountain began to smoke, and the ground quake as the God of heaven descended upon it with his booming voice. As the people looked up the mountain, there was fire and smoke, there was thunder and lightning, and under their feet, the ground was shaking. And distinguished from all of the sights and the sounds and probably even smells was the mighty voice of God. And it was so terrifying that Moses himself said that he was afraid. But in the fear of the people, the Israelites begged Moses. They begged him saying, we want nothing to do with the voice of God. Let him speak to you, but not to us. And then they wouldn't even approach the boundary line at the base of the mountain, but they withdrew, refusing to hear from God, but also refusing to be as close to him as they could. Verse 25, the author equates this refusal, this this turning away from God with the same as uh, 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 refusing to hear from God in the same way as turning away from him. He says, uh, this kind of behavior has irreversible consequences. So the question is, what were the consequences? The older generation of Israel from 20 years and older who uh, were present at the foot of Mount Sinai uh, tells us that every one of those people perished in the wilderness. They did not escape God's judgment. They couldn't take back, as it were, what they did at the base of Mount Sinai. But the author says that the church did not gather at that mountain, thankfully, where the dreadful power of God was put on display, the church, consisting of all who have trusted in Christ for salvation, they didn't go to Mount Sinai, verse 22, but to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem. On this mountain, in the city of God, the text says, abide the angels, where uh, they engage in ceaseless praise. And with them is the general assembly, Uh, These are literally the party people. Uh, The word in Greek speaks of a crowd that is gathered for festive purposes. That's nice. And this crowd really is the church of the firstborn, who are its legal citizens. He said they're registered in heaven. They've been logged in. Uh, It's probably a reference to the book of life. We're legal citizens. Uh, That calls us the spirits of just men made perfect. Of course, that's by the sacrifice of Jesus. With them is God and his son Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, who spilled his blood to secure the believer's inheritance. This is where the believer has currently gathered in spirit, as it were, and will fully realize and experience all of this when we're in the presence of God. Now, the contrast between the experience of Israel and and the experience of the church is enormous. For Israel, God was unapproachable. For the church, God is fully accessible. For Israel, the encounter with God was terrifying and foreboding. For the church, the encounter with God is festive and it's inviting. For Israel, the command to draw near had a warning. And for the church, the invitation is just welcoming. Israel withdrew fearing God's judgment while the church draws near celebrating Christ's atonement and his resurrection. 
And then this brings us uh, to the warning in verse 25 to the, the Hebrews in this Christian fellowship that the book was written to. After this comparison, he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Now, in this statement here, the author is putting greater responsibility on the Christian's loyalty than he did on Israel's loyalty. Like Israel, Christians, of course, must not refuse the God who is speaking to them through the new covenant. To, to refuse him is to turn away from him, which, which can only result in a similar fate. But the author says to the professing Christian, he says, much more shall we not escape if we turn away. The church is held to a higher standard than Israel. For apostasy, professed Christians have a far less chance of escaping judgment. That's what the author is saying. We're more accountable because we, we have all the warnings found in the Old Testament. We have the testimony of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, we have more revelation. We have the revelation of Christ and his word. We have the new covenant of grace that was ratified in his blood. We have the resurrection. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As the author of Hebrews has said, we have a better covenant with better promises, better sacrifices, so when a professing Christian turns away from Christ, he or she turns away from so much more than Israel ever could, and for which there is no escape from judgment. Now this is entirely consistent with the other warnings thus far given in the book of Hebrews. Let me review those with you. And it's startling, I would say, when you put them all together. Uh, when they're spread out throughout the whole book, uh, you kind of get some, some rest from them. But when you put them all together, you really get the full emphasis that the author is trying to get across. Listen carefully. He, he begins with this thread of warnings in chapter two. He says, therefore we, speaking of new covenant believers, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, referencing at Mount Sinai, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> according to his own will. That's Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. He continues in chapter 3 saying, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. That's Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, along with 
chapter 4, verse 1 and 11 through 13. Again, he goes in Hebrews 6, he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Also, Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace? Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. And finally, the last is the one that's before us here in Hebrews 12, 25. That's sort of unnerving. And they're certainly not empty threats. These, these passages keep two different kinds of people up at night. The person who's trying to figure out what they mean and the person who's wavering in their loyalty to Christ. You know, people always debate these sections of scripture and the wavering person should always feel uneasy about the safety of their soul. These passages are not here to help anyone living in sin or doubt feel confident about their salvation. And it's interesting to observe here is that the author is not accusing anyone in that fellowship of turning away from Christ, but he's being very stern with anyone who might be tempted to, as I think that anybody now should be uneasy. He's speaking to anyone today that might be tempted to abandon Christ because the most dangerous of all sins is the rejection of Christ. He's the only hope of salvation. And it doesn't matter if they are professed Christians or not, but the professed Christian who has been taught the scriptures and enjoyed the fellowship of the church is in graver danger for rejecting him. You know, it's like the Hebrews who, uh, in, in the wilderness, they witnessed the 10 plagues of Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They passed through the water and then afterwards, they, they watched the entire Egyptian army be destroyed in the water. They witnessed all the miracles in the wilderness. They enjoyed God's provision of manna, were led by the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day. They watched the water gush out of the rock, and they saw the events at Sinai. It made them accountable. Turning away meant a willful denial of reality and a rejection of God's goodness and salvation. But he who has heard their testimony from the scriptures, after embracing all the benefits of the new covenant, the author is telling us they are in greater danger for turning away. That's the author's point. He's saying Christ cannot be taken for granted, just as Esau could not take his birthright for granted. In fact, despising his birthright led to losing his father's blessing, and as we've said, the consequences were irrevocable. Now, I realize that one's theological uh, position on this predetermines his interpretation of these warnings, but I don't care what your position is on the security of the believer's salvation. These passages are not meant to put anyone at ease. It's quite the opposite. 
Some interpretations actually diminish the threat contained in these warnings, but those interpretations fail to represent the intent of the author. He wants his words to haunt everyone who is tempted to turn from Christ. He doesn't want you to sleep well. He wants you to doubt your security until all that remains is faith in Jesus. So if you're flirting with anything, anything similar to what some in that fellowship were entertaining, it's time to repent. God is holy. He's not to be trifled with. And judgment, it's on the horizon. It's coming. It's time to cling to Christ and be faithful so you can live in confidence and look forward to your inheritance. Let me move on. There's, there's more hellfire and brimstone here. He says, concerning the voice of God, uh, not, he doesn't say that, but well, he is saying that. Uh, when, when the voice of God shook Sinai, the author says in verse 26, he says, whose voice then, that is back then, shook the earth. But now he is promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. It's the promise of future judgment. When Israel refused to hear the Lord at Sinai and turned away from him in the wilderness, they were judged shortly after. But the judgment promised here does not follow shortly after. This event is placed in the context of the end when this temporary universe, which is shakable, is replaced by an eternal one that cannot be shaken. In Revelation 20, this judgment is preceded by the earthly reign of Christ and is followed by the removal of this sin-corrupt world, which God will replace with the new heaven and new earth where the new Jerusalem is. At this judgment, in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, the righteous and the wicked unbelieving will be forever separated from one another. The wicked and unbelieving will, be forever t- will forever take their place in the lake of fire. And God's people will go to their inher- eternal inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth, and they'll dwell in the new Jerusalem with Christ. So verse 28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know, speaking again of the end times, the author clearly has in mind the kingdoms of the earth given over to God's people. It's a reference to Daniel 7, where it says, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him, Daniel 7, 27. According to Daniel, the wicked kingdoms of the earth, those under heaven, will be given over to the saints, and those kingdoms will serve and obey the Lord. This will happen, as Revelation 19 and 20 say, when Christ returns to rule over the earth. How nice it would be at this time if all the governments of the, of the world were replaced by Jesus. It'll be sweet. And when he comes, he'll rule over all the wicked nations and people. It says, with a rod of iron, there will be no tolerance of evil when he comes. No one will get away with abortion or human trafficking or corruption or any such thing. 
John says that his earthly reign over the wicked kingdoms of the earth will last a thousand years, at the conclusion of which he will judge the world and destroy everything corrupted by sin. And then he'll hand the kingdom over to his father in the new heaven and new earth to which there will be no end. Therefore, since we will inherit all of this, the author says, let us have grace by which we may serve God. Now, translations vary at this point. Does the author mean, let us be thankful that we might serve God, or let us have grace that we might serve God? Now, uh, my understanding of the text and, and, and the Greek sources that I trust the most, uh, they say, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Uh, their understanding is that grace here is mentioned as the, the resource by which, God, by which we serve God acceptably. It's, it's referring back to Hebrews chapter four, uh, chapter four verse, six, verse 16, where the author said, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And Kenneth Weiss, a Greek scholar, he says of Hebrews 12, 28, the writer exhorts his readers to appropriate the enabling grace of God so that they may serve him so as to be well-pleasing in his sight. In his translation of the text, he puts it this way. He says, let us be having grace by means of which we might be serving God well-pleasing to him. Now, I agree. These Hebrew Christians are struggling with temptation and unbelief, and the author has told them to pursue peace with their persecutors and to live holy lives. And I don't know about you, but if someone was persecuting me, and I needed to, and I was commanded, and I am commanded to be at peace with them, I'm gonna need something that's not natural to me to do that. Just as these guys are gonna need something that's not natural to their human nature to have peace with those that hate them and to remain holy throughout the process. It's gonna require the grace of God. These people, like us, should be at the throne of grace, receiving grace for their time of need. Grace is God's resource for new covenant living. They need the grace of God that Paul spoke of in Titus chapter two, verse 11 through 14. Paul says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Now, this uh, text obviously is talking about grace as being a resource uh, to live in such a way that is impossible for us naturally. The, the grace of God that Paul talks about here, it doesn't just save, it teaches, it's paideo in the Greek, uh, it steers us away from ungodliness and it, it, it steers us into sobriety, that is clear-headed thinking, into righteousness and godliness and it teaches us to look forward to the glorious appearing of Christ. That's what's acceptable to God. That's what these people needed. It's the same thing that we need in our troubles and our struggles. 
We need to be the recipients, we might say, as well as the students and the practitioners of God's grace. Nothing else can produce a life that is acceptable to God. The author says that also that their service to God must be accompanied by reverence and fear. Now, no one just decides to do this. Uh, in, in the 15 years that I've been in ministry, I don't know how many people have asked me, how do I fear God? I don't, I don't just fear him. How do I learn to fear him? Well, I believe that the fear of God, apart from a miraculous act of God, like it happened at Mount Sinai, I believe that it requires the grace of God. Uh, we need to be taught by his grace to reverence him and to fear him. You know, John Newton understood this when he sang in Amazing Grace, grace taught my heart to fear. Now, in the text here, we have both reverence and fear. Reverence is the anticipation of danger. Fear is the dread of real and present danger. Now, I know that in Western culture, uh, God is not supposed to be dangerous uh, and feared. He's supposed to be cute and cuddly. He's supposed to be attending to my every beck and call. He's supposed to be completely permissive of my lifestyle. He's supposed to be a wimp, really, without any, ex any expectations or demands. But God is not subject to the ideas of Western culture. It's a God fashioned in the heart of people. It's called idolatry, which makes him, a, it's a figment of our imagination. Living God is not subject to the imagination of anyone. He's exactly as he reveals himself in his word. He's the God that Moses was terrified of, verse 21. He's the God that Isaiah was in dread of, Isaiah chapter six. He's exactly what verse 29 says. He is, he's a consuming fire. The author says, for our God is a consuming fire. Now this is not the sanctifying fire, which is the refiner's fire. This is the all-consuming fire of judgment. Our God is holy who consumes all evil with his fiery indignation. These Hebrew Christians needed to uh, take away two things from this final section of Hebrews 12. The two things are the reception of grace that could enable them to be acceptable to God, but to turn away from Christ meant to face his judgment. They needed to know those things and they also needed to, to decide between them. You know, this new covenant that we are in, this new covenant in Christ's blood, it comes with all the necessary provisions for life and godliness. God does not require us to please him apart from his enabling grace, so he offers it abundantly. His grace is experienced as we trust him and as we seek his face. We appropriate his grace as we walk in his spirit. And as we meditate on his word, we enjoy his grace when we worship in spirit and truth, when we fellowship with the family of God, and when we share and receive his word. We cannot live for him without his grace. So let me conclude with what the author has said to these people. He says, do not take God for granted, but let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, acceptably. So I don't know who all is in the audience today, but I talk with people that have doubts all the time, and I know people that flirt with sin. They take God for granted. I would say to you that you need to ask God for grace that you might understand that he is a God of justice, that he's holy, that he's not to be trifled with, but he's to be feared and obeyed. 
And others of you, you you're like uh, so many of us, you struggle with sin, uh, you hate it, you despise it, anything that would deter you from your walk with Christ. Um, the author's reminding us that grace is there and it must be drawn upon so that we can be acceptable to him. Draw from his grace. Go to, go to him for his provisions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, it, it always does what you desire. And Lord, you desire it to do a common thing in all of us, but you also desire that it would do a specific thing in each of us. And Lord, some people need to fall into a place where they're in dread of you because they think that you can be taken for granted, that you can be trifled with, and you cannot. And so, Lord, I pray that, that uh, as your word says, you discipline those that you love, I pray that you would discipline them, that you would rob them of any comfort that they have, that you'd rob them of their sleep, Lord, and that through that you would turn them back to yourself. And as the author of Hebrews has said, that they would become partakers of righteousness, of your holiness. And Lord, for others, as they, they just struggle being the recipients, Lord, the students and the practitioners of grace, I pray that it would be by grace that you teach them. That, Lord, that they would learn how to depend on your grace. They would learn how to walk in your grace so they might be well-pleasing to you. Lord, it is by your grace that we're gonna be useful for your glory. And so I pray, Lord, that, that you would teach us. And Lord, I thank you for my church family. And Lord, uh, along with them, uh, I desire to walk in grace. And I just pray that you would lavish it upon us. And Lord, that we could walk before you in a way that is, that is pleasing. And Lord, for the next week, the next few weeks, uh, I just pray that you would be with your people that you'd grant them sweet fellowship with your spirit. And uh, wherever anyone is at right now, I just pray that you'd sustain them, you'd lift them and encourage their hearts. And, um, and Lord, I pray that all this absence would make our reunion the sweeter, Lord. So thank you, we love you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we love you guys. We'll keep praying for you, pray for us. And I think next week we'll start talking to you about um, maybe a little bit of fellowship. So, uh, Lord bless you. Bye-bye.